So please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 40, the second to last psalm of book one of the Psalms. So in the middle of your Bible or on the back of your handout, if you came in and used the handout, Psalm 40 is printed, and Psalm 40 is one of the final psalms as we conclude this study and series of book one of the Psalms. And throughout this teaching series, we've been calling this the songs of our Savior, the songs that were sung by Jesus because they are about Jesus. We will see that again in Psalm 40. And we don't even have to guess. The Bible tells us, as we just heard from the book of Hebrews, that Psalm 40 is ultimately fulfilled by Jesus Christ. So in light of that, Psalm 40 is a a psalm that talks about past deliverance, about present obedience, and about future hope. Is your gospel Is it robust enough to include past deliverance, present obedience, and future hope? Too often I think that when we think about the Christian faith and the simple phrase, Christ died for our sins, we sometimes only think about what happened in the past when Jesus died on the cross and took away the penalty of our sin. Well, I hope you all know me well enough. For those of you that do, I believe wholeheartedly that that is incredibly good news. Hallelujah. We sang that. Hallelujah. What a Savior, which is an old Hebrew phrase that means praise the Lord that we have a Savior who has rescued us from the penalty of our sin. But what if I told you today from Psalm 40 that we have not just a past deliverance in the Bible, but a present salvation from the penalty of sin and the presence and the power of sin. Psalm 40 seems to address these issues by looking at how God saved David in the past, which fueled his obedience in the present so that his present life would be filled with less sin and that his future hope is in the Lord who will ultimately deliver him. Past, present, future, the penalty the power, and the presence of sin. Brothers and sisters, when we hear the phrase, Christ died for our sins, I would love for all of you to import what you're going to hear today from Psalm 40. You will then realize that the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross was not just to take away the penalty of your sin. As good news as that is, it is so, so much more. Well, that's what we have in store for the rest of this message. I hope that that whets the appetite and gives you a hunger for gospel truth today. I'm going to read God's word from Psalm 40. Follow along with me either on the back of your handout or your Bible. To the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust 
in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evil have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Well, this ends the reading of God's word. And my prayer is that he would write these words on our hearts and bear good fruit as we consider that Psalm 40 is a psalm that is past salvation, producing present grace-driven obedience, and hope of a future where sin will be no more. Past salvation leads to and produces grace-driven obedience in the present and a future hope, a hope where there will be sin no more. And I believe we see this not only from Psalm 40, but Hebrews chapter 10's use of Psalm 40 as it is applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's first make sure we're understanding Psalm 40. And notice the basic outline would be verses 1 through 3, salvation in the past. Verses 4 to 10, that past salvation produced a grace-driven obedience in the present for King David. And then the rest of the psalm, verses 11 to 17, turns to the future. And God preserving David in the future where he cries out to him for future deliverance. Verses 1 through 3, past salvation. Verses 4 to 10, present obedience 
produced by that past salvation that is filled with God's grace. And then third and finally, verses 11 to 17, hope for the future, future deliverance based on all of those previous points. Let's take these one at a time. Let's work through this psalm together. and Let's be encouraged by the God of the Bible who has revealed himself not just to David but to all of us, especially in the person of Christ. That He has saved us in the past. He wants to save us now in our present. And he has a great hope for each of you to cling on to today for your future. Verses 1 through 3, David explains that he waited patiently for the Lord. It's actually the word wait two times. So if you were to read this in Hebrew, if you knew Hebrew, it would read, I waited, waited for the Lord. That sounds funny to you in English, but in Hebrew, when you want to emphasize something, you double it and say it two times. It's kind of like putting a big bold print in an email to someone, all caps, text message. Like, whoa, they're serious. David's serious about his waiting. I waited, waited. I patiently waited for the Lord. He turned to the Lord and he had no one else to turn to. And he says that the Lord, after patiently waiting, he heard him. Brothers and sisters, I hope that you know that God hears your prayers. You are not praying into the empty air to no one. The God of the Bible is real. And even though he doesn't physically have ears other than the person of Jesus, His ear is attentive to your cry. So wait like David patiently for the Lord when you feel like he does here, which is in a pit of destruction, or more literally, the roaring pit. Roaring pit could be the image of someone being stuck in a deep well of water, but the waters are roaring, raging waters. What a mix of metaphors in this pit of destruction. Can you imagine yourself ever in life where that description fits you? Feeling stuck, feeling down, deep down, and it feels as if everything is making you like you can't breathe, like you're drowning in the water. That's the picture that's paralleled with miry bog or mud of a swamp. Each time you try and save yourself, climb out, it's as if you keep slipping And you get further stuck in your mess, in your pit. Some of you might be here today and you need saving. Saving because of God's past deliverance that you need saved from your sin. That this is a good description of the mess of being stuck in sin. The slavery of choosing your way over God's way. And when that is your state You can know that the God of the Bible hears sinners and he rescues them, just like he did David. He drew me up from the pit. He set my feet upon a rock and made my steps secure, from slippery steps to secure steps, from a place of waters overwhelming him deep down to up above on a rock where he is firm. This is all poetry describing the salvation that God brings to those who would cry out to him. So if you're here today and you're a Christian, it's because you have cried out to God and asked for him to save you from the mess 
of the pit that you have dug for yourself in your sin. In addition to that, we have lived in a world full of sin that sometimes it's not only your own sins, but sins done against you and the pressure and the pain of the world around you. And we get stuck in that situation. And regardless of whether it is your fault or the consequences of being born in the family you were born in, God saves. This is what he does. So cry to him. Be reminded today that God is a God in the business of saving people stuck, even when it's because of their own fault that they're in that mess. Brothers and sisters, I hope that you'll be encouraged to pray because you are hearing and being reminded that God hears our prayers. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, maybe today will be a time where you turn to the God of the Bible and pray in the name of Jesus for salvation, for deliverance. Verse 3 says that when God saves David, he puts a new song in his mouth, the song of praise to God. It changes him. He went from crying to crying out in praise. And this happens to so many of us. We just sang a couple songs this morning, did we not? Well, some of you, maybe that was just a ritual going through routine. But for some of us, I, I can speak for myself. The song we sang, even the brand new one we sang, Is He Worthy? He is. He put a song in my heart, and I was singing with joy that Jesus Christ is, in fact, worthy. And I hope and pray for many of you that when we sing this last song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, it would be like an old song you've heard before, but a new song in your heart. As you're reminded of God's salvation, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. So take my heart, Lord, take and seal it, and seal it for thy courts above, because Jesus sought me when I was a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, but he, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. He creates in us, through his spirit, a song in our heart. And so we sing as we gather in the great congregation, as we gathered today. We sing songs because God has rescued us. But God not only rescues us in the past, through the blood of Jesus, from the penalty of our sin. He rescues us now, right now, today. God could be using his word to encourage you in the gospel to save you from the present power of sin. Let's look and see how this happens to David in verses 4 to 10. How God's grace produces obedience in the present for him. Starting in verse 4, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust and does not turn to the proud or to those who go astray after a lie. So right away, you see that past salvation where David was delivered and he's so thankful and he's got a song in his mouth, but it then leads to trust. And you consider what God has done for you in the past, and you don't just pray and keep asking, but you turn and say, did I pray last week that one of our church members that when his dad goes into surgery, that God would watch over that surgery and it would be successful? Did we pray that last week? Yes, we did. And did God faithfully answer and hear our prayers so that a, a father, a husband, a grandfather, his life is preserved by God's grace? Do you ever look back at past prayers and that that fuel your confidence and trust that God hears your prayers? Blessed is the man who knows that God is worthy of their trust. They do not turn to the proud or turn to those who go astray after a lie. That's a very wooden, literal way. It's a great translation, but I think it's referring to turning away to idolatry, false gods. 
You trust in God. You do not reject God. You trust in his goodness. You're not looking for vain, empty forms of worship to satisfy the deep longings presently in your heart. Present trust on the basis of past deliverance. Oh, what joy and happiness it will be for each of us when we trust God. Do you ever complicate the Christian life? I think we do too often. It's really, really simple sometimes. Trust how good God is by being reminded of how much he has loved you and saved you in Jesus Christ. And may that trust fuel obedience today. He is worthy of your trust. You can know that he is for you and not against you. Look at the way that David just starts going on in these verses, talking about the goodness of God and how his trust is just overflowing with joy. Verse 5, you have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. Thoughts could also be translated plans. Your wonderful plans are amazing. So many of you missed out this morning on Doug sharing his testimony. And when he got to this point, talking about how the plans of God for him and for us, it overwhelmed his his heart. He was filled with such joy and exuberance for just sharing about how amazing the plan of God is that you find in the Bible. He's been a Christian for 35 years, and as he shared that testimony with us today, it's getting him all choked up thinking about how good the plans of God are. That's what it sounds like reading Psalm 40, doesn't it? Your plans are so wonderful, they are multiplied. So many things that I could point to, God, about how good you are. There's nothing that can compare, or another way of translating this phrase in verse 5, the last phrase, none can compare with you, or nothing can confront you or challenge you. Your plans are supreme. They are the best. So nothing compares to or nothing can challenge to say, whoa, what do you think you're doing, God? You ever take that posture? Who do you think you are? What are you doing in my life? What are you doing in the world? How could you? This psalm is declaring that his plans and his thoughts are wonderful. And you should not ultimately think that you have a better plan than him. So David says, I will proclaim and tell of them, and they are so great and so wonderful and so numerous that I can't even count all of them. Trust the Lord in the present by looking at his past deliverance and seeing how wonderful his plan of salvation is in your life, in the person sitting next to you, in the church member, and see if gathering weekly with believers downstairs, upstairs, hearing testimonies like we heard from Doug today, hearing the preaching of the word of God and hearing other people come up and share God's word. You will leave hopefully week in and week out saying, God is good. So good. How could we possibly stand up and shake our fist and say otherwise? Look how good he has been. He has saved us in the past. And so now I trust him with my whole heart and give total allegiance to him. I think that's exactly what he's trying to move toward in verses 6 to 8. Look down with me at 6 to 8. These verses are confusing. There's various translations, and just even on the surface, you might be like, that's weird. Verse 6. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. What does that mean? Burnt offering and sin offering, 
you have not required. But actually, he did require them. What is verse 6 saying? Sacrifices and offerings, which is referring to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament way of worshiping God. Taking an animal, sometimes the burnt offering, for example, that means you burn the entire animal. You don't eat any of it. You don't share any of it. You take an animal, you put it on an altar, and you burn the entire thing. It's a burnt offering that ascends up into the heavens and says, God, this is completely for you. We don't get to enjoy any of it for ourselves. Sin offering, as the name goes, is a way to say, I have sinned, and so blood is required for my sin. And it teaches God's people about how you should wholeheartedly give worship to God and have an offering for your sin. And verse 6 is saying God does not delight in, does not require these things. I thought the whole point was that they would be a pleasing aroma that he delights in. Or that he commanded these things and so David should do them. And then there's that strange phrase, but you have given me an open ear. And if you have a footnote in your Bible, you might see that it literally says, you have dug an ear in my head. Well, that's playing with words, isn't it? You have dug an ear in my head. So if you put all of this together, I think what's happening is that David is referring to what happened with Samuel and Saul. So for those of you that aren't familiar with the Bible, David was a king over Israel. Prior to that, Saul was the king before him. And Saul was appointed mostly by the people because they wanted a tall, handsome, good-looking man to be the king. Somebody that everybody would look up to. Kind of more of a popularity contest. Maybe politics back in the ancient world aren't too different from our current world, are they? The people wanted somebody that they could look up to and admire. God wanted somebody that was godly. The people picked Saul and God gave them over and said, sure, take Saul. See how that works for you. If you read 1 Samuel chapter 15, you'll read about a story where Samuel, who's a prophet, who's speaking on behalf of God, tells King Saul, Saul, you need to go in and win this war on behalf of God and destroy everything. Now, that's a complex thing for us to talk about, and I just need to be honest that that's what's going on in the Bible. Destroy all of the Amalekites. Saul goes in, wins the war, and he doesn't kill King Agag. He doesn't destroy the animals and possessions. He keeps them for himself. So when Samuel's confronting Saul, he says, um, God told you to destroy everything and everyone. What are you doing? Saul explains, well, I brought these animals back for sacrifices. If you're not tra tracking, this is like 20 years you've been cheating on your taxes, stealing, robbing the government from what they deserve. Jesus himself, if you're a Christian, you follow Jesus. He says, Give to Caesar what Caesar's. Romans chapter 13 tells you, pay your taxes. So if you're here and you're a Christian, you should pay your taxes. It's April. It's a good time to be thinking about taxes, right? So that's what the Bible teaches. But let's just say, for example, you don't like the government, and you think, I want to give all that money instead of to the government, to the church. Surely Pastor Phil's going to be on board with that. Give all the money to the church, and I'm not going to pay any of my taxes. That's the kind of mindset that Saul has. I will directly disobey a command from God for what I think is a better way to obey God. And so what Samuel tells Saul 
Listen to this. This is from 1 Samuel 15, not Psalm 40. Notice if you think they sound similar. This is 1 Samuel 15, starting in verse 22. And Samuel said, Has the Lord any great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as he does delight in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, I tell you, Saul, to obey is better than making sacrifices. To listen is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being the king. And from that point forward, Saul loses his throne. So if Psalm 40, 6 to 8, seems to be referencing 1 Samuel 15, and I think it is, the point should be more clear. Direct disobedience to the voice of God is what you should care about rather than performing all of these other religious things and thinking, oh, well, God's going to be happy with that, even though you know you're directly disobeying God. Hence my illustration, not paying your taxes. And let's not just say, oh, I didn't even realize that was in the Bible. You don't pay your taxes and you know you should be paying your taxes. Directly disobeying God's word is the context for verses 6 to 8. So then that little phrase but you have given me an open ear. You have dug an ear in my head. Well, that should be more obvious now. If you don't have holes in your head, you're not going to be able to hear. So he's saying, God is opening up a hole in my head, my stiff-necked head that does not want to listen, my, my, my deaf, hard-of-hearing head. He's opening a big hole so I can hear the voice of God. And that's the point. Verse 6, God, you're not, you're not delighting in all of my sacrifices, and all my tithes and offerings when I'm going home and I'm being disrespectful to my wife and not treating her the way that your word commands me to. God, you're not impressed with all of my giving to the homeless when I go about cheating my workers in my job. God wants you to have an open ear that hears and obeys all of his words, not just some of them, that you pick and choose. When Jesus commissions his disciples, he says, go and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them my commandments. Does that sound like a good summary of what Jesus said in Matthew 28? Or did I miss a huge, important obey? Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them to do what? To obey all of my commandments. Present obedience flows out of past deliverance. When you trust God, you trust that he knows better, not just for how to take care of your past problems and sins. He knows better right now. Do you trust him? Is his plans repeatedly revealing themselves as better than your plans? Do you see the relationship between David's past and his present? And his desire to obey God with his whole heart. This is what the way, verse 7 says, Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. 
This is a reference to Deuteronomy 17 because David is a king and the king is supposed to read the law of God every day. He is to recite it, to repeat it, to rewrite it. He's supposed to be dedicated to the Bible. That's what the king's supposed to be like. And the reason for that in Deuteronomy 17 is so that he would keep all of the words of the law and that his heart would not be lifted in pride and turning aside from God's word to the right or to the left. Instead, a delight to want to do God's will and have his law deep in the heart of the king. Do you see how David, to trust God, based on his past, leads to present obedience, wholehearted present obedience, not just begrudging, oh, I got to do this. The law of God written on his heart where his desires are the same as God's desires. His wants and goals are the same as God's wants and goals. Is this at all describing what's happened to you? Do you see the difference between turning to Jesus and saying, well, great, he's going to forgive me for all the bad things I've done so I can do whatever I want versus Jesus Christ saved me from the wretched pit that I was in because of my sin. And he doesn't want to leave me there. He wants to pull me out of that pit, not so I go back into the pit, so that way I live on the safe, secure, steady rock that is Jesus Christ, obeying his commands from my heart. Heartfelt obedience as a delight. And the only way to do that is, is through God's grace. How do you change your heart to take something that you once loved and turn it to something you hate, to do something else that you've never done before. Take, for example, studying the Bible, going to church, meeting for prayer. Many of you in this room, you did not have any interest in any of those things for, for much of your life. And then God saved you. And that salvation produced heartfelt, grace-driven obedience. Not to save you and pull you out of the pit. He pulled you out of the pit. So stay out by obeying him and loving him, and trusting him, producing that new song in your mouth with a new desire in your heart so that you can tell the whole world, like David does in verses 9 and 10, look how good God is. David tells the glad news of deliverance, and that's the Hebrew word that we get gospel from. That's why I said this psalm is about the gospel, telling the glad news, the good news of God's deliverance to David. He wants to tell everybody about it. Whatever you're going around telling people about, like, hey, guess what? I got a new grandbaby. Can I show you the picture? The thing you're the most excited about is the thing that you will most naturally proclaim to the watching world. And if the gospel's not something you're excited about, then you're just not going to tell anybody about it. But if you're reminded regularly how great the pit was that you were stuck in, and that God and his grace, not out of your effort to climb yourself out, rescued you from the pit and gave you a new path. My guess is that this room will be increasingly filled with evangelists. That's the other word for gospelers, heralds, people who, like David in verse 9, tell the glad news of deliverance. Perhaps the reason why you have been either too ashamed or too scared or too self-conscious to share the gospel with someone, especially for those of you that are, are, are Christians, it's because the gospel is not freshly sweet to you. And I think the only way for it to be freshly sweet to you is for you to be reminded 
of the deliverance in the past and the joy of following Jesus in the present so that you are overflowing with declarations, not restraining your lips, as you know, Lord, in the great congregation, sharing about the deliverance that God has given. I'm not going to keep this to myself within my heart. i got to get this out. This is too good to keep to myself. That's verse 10. I'm not concealing your steadfast love and your faithfulness, but notice the location. Where is David in verse 10 when he is doing this proclamation? The congregation. So I think that there are applications for evangelism, but I think there are applications for you and I to gather together with other Christians and hear them share their testimonies of how they came to faith, how they've been delivered. And not just faith in Jesus from the penalty of their sin. How about testimonies where people have been rescued from the power of sin right now? So again, you missed out this morning. I don't want to like, you know, guilt trip you, but this morning Doug did an excellent job sharing with us how God saved him from his past sin. But then he went on to say, but guys, it's more than that. It's better than that. Presently, right now, I'm less angry than I used to be. I'm more self-controlled than I used to be. Presently, the power of sin is losing its grip on me as I gaze at the beauty of Christ and the gospel. I know how good he is. I trust him and I'm overwhelmed about the plan of salvation. That's what we got to hear just this morning. I did not plan that. God and his sovereignty brought that to Doug, and he shared that with us, and so we were freshly reminded in the great congregation of the church of the steadfast, faithful love of God to save people past and present. So I would encourage you that if you want to grow in your evangelism and sharing the good news of Jesus, then make a commitment to come to church and be around people that want to talk about the good news of the gospel. Maybe you'll move on from this place. Maybe you won't be able to gather here at Embassy. Find a church where they love talking about the gospel. They don't get tired of talking about how God has saved them. As if, didn't we talk about that last year around April, Pastor Phil? Didn't you do a whole sermon series, seven weeks, on the gospel? Can't we move on to something else? Answer, no, no. We are so dependent on reminders that God in Christ has saved us. So the great congregation is the audience that David just wants to tell, oh, look what God has done in the past, in the present. Look what he's going to do in the future. And that's how this psalm turns. In verse 11, the rest of the psalm is hope for the future. So I just want you to notice the way God's saving acts in the past produced obedience in the present and then finally a confidence that God will deliver David in the future. I'm going to read the rest of the psalm and I want you to just see how he's turning to God for all of his future enemies, for all of his future sins, no matter how many they are, and he has hope and he's ultimately praying, please don't delay, come quickly. Verse 11, as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me for evils have encompassed me beyond number my iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see they are more than the hairs of my head my heart fails me be pleased O Lord to deliver me O Lord make haste to help me let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt Let those be appalled who, because of their shame, who say to me, aha, aha. 
But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. The psalm began with David recollecting how he waited patiently and then God delivered. That produced love, heartfelt desire to trust God and obey him fully. And then the rest of the psalm turns his attention to what's up ahead. And he has confidence that God will deliver him in the future. That's my argument for Psalm 40. Past, present, future, hope in God's great salvation so that we will say not just once, but continually, great is the Lord. But I believe that all that David knows about God is just like a little inch, a shadow compared to what we have in the New Testament in Jesus Christ. What David's referring to about past deliverance, present power, and future presence of needing God to rescue us, it gets magnified in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we had Wes come up earlier in the service and he read for us Hebrews chapter 10. And the writer of Hebrews wants to make the point about how great salvation is to don't turn away from God. Stick to Jesus. Hold fast to Jesus. Don't give up meeting together. Don't give up going to church. Don't give up encouraging each other in the gospel. We have a great salvation, he says in chapter 2. So pay closer attention to the salvation that God has given you in Jesus Christ. And he tells them the gospel like 20 times in 8, 9, 10 chapters prior to them him saying once again the gospel. And if you were following along when Wes read, it says in Hebrews chapter 10 that Christ came into the world and he said, Psalm 40. And I just love that the writer of Hebrews tells us that when Jesus came into the world, he said, and then he quotes Psalm 40. Are you telling me that when Jesus came into the world, he read and applied and fulfilled Psalm 40? According to the writer of Hebrews, that's exactly what I'm saying. Maybe we should call this sermon series, The Songs of Our Savior. Because Psalm 40 is a song that Jesus said, that he sung, and that he fulfilled. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. And then here, using the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the ear is removed from the image, and it's, but a body you have prepared for me. In other words, wholehearted obedience is what the whole ear illustration was about. And you can read that from Hebrews 10. God does not delight in burnt offerings and sin offerings. He takes no pleasure in them. And so then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So there's a scroll. The scroll is called Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, it says kings should read the word of God, know the word of God, and obey the word of God. And David says uh, that about himself in Psalm 40. Jesus apparently did that way better than David. And so the writer of Hebrews goes on and says, when he said that you did not desire or take pleasure in sacrifices, offerings, burnt offerings, and sin offerings, because these were according to the law of Moses, he then added, behold, I have come to do your will. 
And so he did away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. By fulfilling the law and the prophets, by being the one who, like David, but in a greater way, came to do the will of God, obeying every single command and never once failing, Jesus Christ sacrificed not an animal, but himself on the cross. A self-offering, a whole burnt offering, and a sin offering all at once, fulfilling the sacrificial system so that when you read about animal sacrifices, you know that they're just a shadow. They're a sign pointing you forward of the real destination, which is Jesus on the cross. And when he died on that cross, he then made a sacrifice that was good once and for all, and no need for further sacrifice. They served their purpose. When Christ came, their time had come to an end. And by his blood, a better sacrifice and a greater deliverance was achieved. Jesus Christ, after he was on the cross, he was buried into the grave. You could say he was in a pit because the word pit is often used to be buried down into the earth in a grave. But out of the pit he came. The roaring pit of hell, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The miry mud of sin, the hands of evil men, God in Christ rescued from sin, Satan, and death. And so he hears cries of rescue and puts us, like he does Jesus, on a rock. But this rock is the very throne of God in heaven. And so you and I, by faith in Jesus and union with him, are not just taken out of the mess of our sin. We are lifted into the heavens. And many of you are like, well, I'm not in the heavens right now. And that's why the penalty of sin tells you that your future, heaven and earth, your existence, it will be filled with the fullness of heaven here on earth. And that is where Christ is now, and this single offering is perfecting those who are being perfected. Perfected, mature, reaching your end goal. Do you ever feel like, I just wish I could arrive and come to the point where it's like, I don't have to keep trying to make a name for myself or earn my place or have status or all of those things that we aspire to. The word perfected is when you reach that end destination. How many of you Christians are like, man, I just want to be done fighting with sin? Hebrews 10 tells us that you will be fully perfected, and you're being perfected now, presently, in the future, fully. So if you put Psalm 40 and Hebrews 10 together, I think you have a solid case that Jesus Christ has a greater deliverance than the deliverance of David, pulling you out of a deeper, more terrible pit of sin, Satan, and death. And that that does not just say, well, great, now I'm not going to go to hell. Now I can live however I want and have all my sins forgiven. But gives you a new path and places you in a new trajectory to obey God. He saved you to worship him and obey him, to live a life that reflects his character and his goodness. And one day, the perfection that is Jesus Christ will be yours upon his return. And all of that came from Hebrews 10's use of Psalm 40. So I declare to you that past deliverance produces present obedience. 
that is grace-driven and produces a future hope. Penalty, power, presence of sin dealt with. Hope and pray that each of you, as you hear this, will rightly apply the truth of the gospel to your individual life and that us as a church collectively, that we would apply this truth to our church. We would understand the fullness of God's salvation in Christ, cling to him and not turn away, and encourage each other when some of us are being in that temptation to slip down into the pit. We need one another. We need to encourage each other because of the deceitfulness of sin. We need the gospel. So if you're here and you're a brother or sister in the faith, we're going to celebrate this past deliverance, present hope, and future hope by taking the Lord's Supper. But before we do that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for sending Jesus into the world to rescue sinners. We thank you for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and that we are not forever destined to be stuck in sin, not even in this life right now. And I pray for fellow brothers and sisters who have repented of their sin and put their trust in Jesus. But lately they've been tempted to think, I'm never going to get over this thing, this sin, this hurdle, this struggle. I pray that they'd be reminded very clearly and loudly from your word that you want to set them on a rock and give them a secure footing for their feet. I pray that they would believe with great gratitude in their heart that you have saved them from the entire totality of sin and all that it could do. And I pray, God, that we would be overwhelmed with joy and have a new song in our heart and sing with gusto that you are the one who rescued and saved us. So come, tune our hearts to be inclined to obey you. That we would not just hear your word today from Psalm 40 and Hebrews 10. We would be doers of your word, proclaimers of your gospel. We would be like David and want to share this good news in the church and outside of it. God, we pray that this would bring you glory and praise because you are clearly worthy of praise. Your plan of salvation, it is so great and it is so deep that we can't even scratch the surface of it. And we just want to acknowledge that the little cup that we have, this thimble-like cup of juice, it symbolizes the very little that we have fully grasped of your salvation. And there is an ocean of glory and goodness awaiting us in your word and in all of eternity. So I pray that we would be encouraged and reminded of your salvation in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.